Good morning. We get to be in God's Word together today. And if you're looking at the back of the bulletin, there's a lot of His Word to cover. All right? So we're going to get to work real quick. Uh, I have, I just took the week off, so I have vacation energy. So I'm hoping that you will reciprocate my vacation energy. When I say something that God stirs in your soul, I'd encourage you to say amen. If I say something that you don't like, go, uh, all right, that's totally fine. I want to give you the main point as we study today. I want to set it up so we understand that we're going to hang everything on one specific point. The name of the sermon is The Substitute. And the main point I want us to understand today is Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our substitute. That's it. As we study today, we will hang everything on that simple point because we will see that the, this book of the Bible, this chapter in particular, are all pointing towards the substitute, the one who will stand in the gap for us, for his people, and he will be the perfect sacrifice and be the atonement for our sin. I'll walk through what that means in a bit. He'll pay the price that you and I deserve to pay because of our sin, and he'll hang on a cross dying while hanging on that cross. But here's the thing, we know that it doesn't end there, right? We understand that he didn't just hang on a cross and that was it, but there is some good news that's coming. Sunday's coming. He rises from the dead. So with that key, Jesus is our substitute. Let's jump into this. We've been studying the book of John for quite a while and today we're going to conclude chapter 11, where Jesus has just performed this miraculous sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. This is probably the most miraculous of all of Jesus' signs, all of his miracles up until this point. But Jesus had raised others from the dead before Lazarus. Neither of those resurrections were as public or as obvious as Lazarus's resurrection. But let's look at where else we see Jesus Use this power to raise people from the dead. So the first one will be Luke chapter 7. You can turn there or it'll be up on the screen. And Luke writes, starting in verse 11, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry, then he went up and touched the buyer they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Jesus had performed this miracle of this young man being carried on a, in his casket, essentially. And people, when they saw this miracle of him being raised from the dead, they were in awe and they praised God, but they assumed that Jesus was a prophet from God rather than God incarnate. Then in Mark chapter 5, we'll start in verse 21 and jump around a little. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. So Jesus went with him. Jump to verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So we have these two other resurrections found 
in Scripture, found in the Gospels, prior to Jesus raising this third resurrection, this very public and dramatic resurrection of Lazarus, his friend. And we've talked about this before, but Lazarus was in the grave for four days. And because of lack of embalming in this time period, full-on decomposition would start to take place for sure by 72 hours. So let's read what we studied last week. Jesus was once more deeply moved. He came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away that stone. Move that bus, he said. But the Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days, as we saw in King James, Lord, he stinketh, is what it says. Then verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So now we have three resurrections. This is what we studied last week. This is the third and final resurrection prior to Jesus' public ministry being halted because his true purpose, church, the true purpose of why Jesus came was to die. That was his purpose. He came to hang on a cross. He came to come and die, and, and this miracle would inaugurate the fact that he was going to go to the cross. The teachers of the law could not explain away this miracle, so instead they devised a plan to remove the author of life because he was causing too much of a stir in Jerusalem, and tensions were starting to get high. But this miracle has just taken place, and what we will see is the other reaction today, to Jesus performing the sign that ought to authenticate Jesus' true identity. He is the resurrection and the life. Some believed, as we left off last week, verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and believed in him. Verse 45. We concluded last week with this verse that stated, because of this miracle, many of the Jews who had come from Jerusalem to mourn with Mary and Martha now had witnessed this miracle, and they had believed that Jesus was who he said that he was. But not everyone. See, this entire gospel, the gospel of John, is written It was a letter making known that Jesus is the Christ. There are multiple miracles that are recorded in this letter. There are many I statements that are recorded in this letter. And Jesus does not mince words. He came to make known that he is the king of the kingdom of God. The Messiah in which the Old Testament had proclaimed would come, not to reign politically, but to reign supernaturally and spiritually. But we also have others who viewed it and viewed the aftermath of this miracle And we see how those who are antagonistic against Jesus saw what this miracle signified. What we will see are people without eyes to see, without ears to hear. What Jesus, according to them, is not the Messiah that they expected. It's not the one that they wanted, even though he's absolutely the one that they needed. So verse 46, all that was to get to this. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them, what Jesus had done. Okay, some of the Jews tattled on Jesus. Any of you guys tattlers? Did any of you tattle on your, no, a couple of you? Kyle, good for you, all right. Perfect, Brooke, perfect. They tattle on Jesus. Jesus has done this supernatural thing, that silly Jesus doing a supernatural thing. How dare he think he's he's God, and yet the works that he does are things that only God can do. Jesus' actions and teachings often divided the Jews because he was not what they were expecting, and their spiritual and theological arrogance did not allow them to accept the fact that their own scriptures, that they tried to justify themselves by keeping, could have possibly been talking about him. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus had brought a teaching and an authority that they had never seen before. And we are going to see in this passage of John, the teachers of the law took his words, his actions as insurrection, 
missing the entire point of what he said, missing the entire point of whose authority he was speaking by and his actions, even though supernatural, should have been seen as evidence of his deity, but instead they became another excuse that the Jews used against Jesus. Because the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, who were also the other top teachers of the law in this context, would not and could not see Jesus for who he is. In fact, we studied this in John chapter 5, verse 39, where Jesus has just healed a paralyzed man at, at the pool of Shalom, and he has to defend himself against the Pharisees. Here's what it says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Okay, real quick, too many of us think that we're more of a theologian than a Christian, and we're spending all of this time going, well, I'm looking at the scripture, I understand what this says, I understand that, but what we're going to see today is it's not about knowing all the right things, it's about actually obeying the God that you love. And he says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. This is the ongoing theme in the book of John, in the book of Matthew, in the book of Mark, in the book of Luke, that Jesus came to fulfill the will of the Father. He came to seek and save what is lost. He came to do what you and I could not do, which is be the perfect sacrifice, always fulfilling the will of the Father through obedience. Obedience to God was how Jesus showed his love for God. And we also get to show our love for God by obedience to him. But unlike Jesus, we need a heart change first. So many of us put the cart before the horse, and we think as long as we do these things right, then God will accept us. God does not accept you in your work. God accepts you because of Christ's work. But see, Jesus was being, here's a term we'll define eventually, a substitutionary atonement for our sins. And that's what this passage is full of. So hear me, Jesus is the substitute. You need to hear this. At the center of Christianity is substitution. Substitution is the center of Christianity. See, it's not about me, it's about him. I plead Jesus. I'm with him. These are terms we use because we know that our good works will never compare to what Christ has already done for us. That's the heart of the gospel. See, the only works that we're saved by is Christ's perfect work through his life lived, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. That is the only work that saves us. Verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. They said, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. This anger towards Jesus is now getting real, if you will. Up until this point, there were a bunch of mobs of people that were against Jesus, but they had no political sway. But here we go with the Sanhedrin. It was this Jewish council. It was, for our context, the supreme court of the Jewish nation. And the Sanhedrin consisted primarily of Sadducees and chief priests who were formerly high priests and family members of the chief priests. And the Pharisees could not by themselves take any judicial action against Jesus because even though they were under the Roman control, the Sanhedrin was the highest judicial body that they could experience. There were about 70 people in the Sanhedrin and they were dominated by the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they never really got along, but what they finally got along with was the fact that they both hated Jesus. So now we don't just see public preference. We don't see culture, a cultural issue anymore. Now it's becoming political, all right? The Jewish ruling, ruling council is now under the jurisdiction of Rome. They had very little power anymore. So more people, if more people believed in Jesus the less powerful this Sanhedrin would be under Rome because they would have a divided nation. And that divided nation was hoping that Jesus was this political Messiah that would lead this army against Rome that would then create a war with Rome, which by force Rome would absolutely win. Up until this point, Jesus just seemed like a minor blasphemer. As we studied in John chapter 10, but now he's becoming a threat to Israel. And the little bit of independence that the nation of Israel had and they possessed was now at stake. The one who came to save was now considered an enemy to the nation of Israel. How about that? So they asked this question, what are we accomplishing? 
This refers to the assumption that by doing nothing, they're actually helping Jesus build a following as if the council can impede the works of God. But they don't know what they don't know, and neither do we. They don't know of the arrogance in which they are functioning. They don't know who they are actually attempting to stop and shut down. The theologian John Calvin said it this way, if Christ had been some imposter, their duty would have been to employ their excursions, that he might not lead away the sheep from the Lord's flock, but by confessing his miracles, they make it sufficiently evident that they don't care much about God, whose power they boldly and disdainfully despise. Note that even the Pharisees and the chief priests admitted that Jesus was performing signs. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He had performed the sign that pointed to his deity, and what did they want to do? They wanted to kill him for it. Hmm. It feels ridiculous to know that these religious leaders who were so pious, they were so busy being busy for the Lord, so fervent in their religious activity and keeping the law, could not see Jesus for who he actually is. And it almost seems like there needs to be a supernatural work of God for us to see him for who he is. Huh. The disciples were asked by Jesus about who people thought he was in Matthew 16. Here's what it says. In verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, so a dead prophet. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered with a really good answer. He said, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God, very similar to what Martha said in John chapter 11. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So what's the difference between those who are in the kingdom of God and those who aren't? What's the difference between those who have experienced the kingdom of God and those who just don't get it? It's eyes to see who Jesus truly is, which is not because someone convinced you, not because someone had a really good explanation or analogy for the gospel, but because the God from heaven in his merciful power opened your eyes to his majestic saving grace. See, it's all God. I spent this past week on a cruise with my wife, and now I know all of you feel really bad for me. And one of the things I love to do on vacation, let's just be, I'm going to be really honest about what I love to do on vacation. Some of you are nervous. Relax. What I love to do on vacation is read and relax. That's what I do on vacation. I read a ton. In fact, I read a ton of books, mostly about theology and scripture. Yep, I'm a lot of fun. I know. But as I was reading all of these books, the one thing that kept coming through in these books as I read about people who knew Christ was that when you know Christ, your affections change. When you know Christ, your affections change. See, the people who know Christ hate the sin that they once loved and love the son whom they once ignored. But here's the other thing. God says, what's the greatest commandment? To love God with all your soul, strength, mind, and, yeah, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So how do you love God? You love other people. You don't just love other people, but as you love other people, you are effectively loving God if you trust him and know him. See, it is God loving other people through us that he does. And I think we, as Christians, if you've been in the church for a while, if you not just this one, but a Christian, we try to quantify what redemption, what salvation looks like. See, we have passages in Ephesians and Galatians that infer that those who have been redeemed by the Spirit of God are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 1. And that they're growing in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. And that's Galatians 5. And these are great biblical foundations to look at. In fact, when I meet with some of you, I'm looking at, are the works that are happening, that you're doing, are those things that the Holy Spirit would do through his people? But here's what we've seen over the ages, that those who've been included in Christ, they have their affections changed for the glory of God. In fact, John the baptizer, as he was speaking of Jesus, said it this way in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must, speaking of Jesus, must become greater. I must become 
less. See, John the Baptist, when asked about Jesus, had those words. His affections for Christ were about Jesus rather than himself. When Paul was writing to the church in Philippi and he was in jail, he said, for to me, to live is Christ, Philippians 1.21, and to die is gain. Why? Because to die would be in perfect relationship, in heaven, in eternity with God, without the chasm of sin, without any issues, because he would be he would be unto his next life. When we come to Christ, we may think that our lives have to be changed. Some of us may act as if our lives are changed to fool other people because we hear that that's what you're supposed to do, and your life will change progressively. But the thing we cannot fake is our heart. Are we affectionate for God? That may be the most important question I ask. Are we affectionate for God? Are we affectionate for his commands? Are we affectionate for his word? Are we affectionate for his will? See, the apostle John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Obedience to and for God is something that God's children do. Let me say that again. Obedience to and for God is something that God's children do. Not perfectly, but progressing. Not because they have to, but because, as the Apostle John says, his commands are not burdensome. Why? Because of the affection that we have of the Spirit of God in us to the Son of God. So what does the Sanhedrin worry about? Verse 48. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. See, the Sanhedrin, they're worried that if Jesus creates a following that would crown him as this earthly king, the Roman Empire will pay attention. And not only will they destroy Jesus, but they will destroy any little bit of independence that Israel had at that point. And they will destroy the temple in which they have created as the place where they worship God. Isn't that ironic? Since they're afraid to lose the temple where they worship God, even though God with skin is right in front of them and they're trying to figure out a way to kill him. There seems to be, though, some political hyperbole here. As they say, if we let him continue, then everyone will believe in him. And I just know this about our sinful hearts. Our sinful hearts make us exaggerate. Did any of you exaggerate this week? Be real, you're in church. Never. Yeah, perfect. And the Sanhedrin cared more about their many amount of responsibility and authority than they did for this Jewish carpenter. But ultimately, they cared more about their roles and their titles than they did about the God that they claimed that they worshipped. The council believed that unless they intervene, an uprising will take place. This is where this passage starts to shed light on its prophetic narrative, okay? It says in John chapter 11, verse 49, then one of them, enter Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. Now, just putting this out, I really don't like Caiaphas, all right? I'm just so you're going to hear me be angry at Caiaphas. You know nothing at all, he says. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas is the perfect politician, and I mean that as I say it. He's the high priest that year who rebukes the Sanhedrin for their proposal to just try to stop Jesus physically rather than substitute his life for the nation's. Caiaphas is the poster child of someone who has played the game to get in the ranks of politics to get a higher level. In fact, it was all nepotism. His father-in-law, Annas, had been high priest, and in John chapter 18, it alludes to the fact that Caiaphas and Annas were both high priests at the same time, and they were related. Talk about a power struggle. Even though Jesus is innocent of any actual law-breaking against the government, he has not sinned against God, Caiaphas points towards what could be easiest and swiftest in making this whole problem go away. But what he was saying was more than just the devilish plan to save the prosperity of the leaders of Israel. What he did not know was that he was explaining substitutionary atonement. There it is that Jesus would bring for those who would be included in Christ and receive his death as their sole means of justification. Here's the definition. Substitutionary atonement. Here's what it refers to. Jesus Christ dying as a substitute for sinners. Who are sinners? Us. 
And Jesus being the substitute is what Caiaphas prophesied, if he knew it or not. John writes in verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. His words may have been meant for evil. This may have been a plan that Caiaphas thought that he had come up with on his own, but God used this carnal, idiotic pansy to put into plan the redemption that he was going to have for us. Yeah, I don't like Caiaphas. I think when we assume prophecy, it's always, we think that people always understood what they were sharing. But throughout Scripture, God used individuals that did not know specifically what they were saying to be used by God for God's glory. In fact, he used a donkey, and I said, donkey, good for me, in the Old Testament. Verse 52, and John says, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together to make them one. The author John is stating that God will and is using the whole narrative to point towards his ultimate plan of what? Substitution. We say this a lot, but at the heart of the gospel, we have the great exchange. See, Jesus got what we deserved, and we get what he deserves. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, my tattoo verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We deserve death, and Jesus got it. Jesus procured righteousness, and we received it. God's plan has always been to save a people. And this may make some of you mad, and that's okay. You can email me. It'll go directly to my admin. I'm still on vacation. God's plan has always been to save a people, not a nationality, not a skin tone, but to save a people bound by the bloodline of Jesus. Hold on. Not through generations of the same family heritage, but the blood in which he shed on the cross for those he would redeem by the glory of his name. See, it's really easy to get this twisted. It's really easy to say, well, I grew up in a Christian home, so that makes me a Christian. Uh Uh-uh. No, it doesn't. You must repent because of faith. It's really easy to believe that Jesus died for a race or for a country, but he died for a people. Those who by his grace would receive his salvation through faith in his only son, Jesus, for the glory of his name. This was the salvation, not just for the Jewish nation, but for the Gentiles, who most of us are included in, to hear about the goodness of this God of the Jews, that the Jews would also be drawn by him. And he would draw the scattered children of God throughout the world to himself. And this is one of the big reasons that, I don't know if you're ever out and about, or you, you know, if you ever like, do anything other than leaving your house and coming here and then going back to your house, but if you meet anyone throughout the week and you run into someone who is a believer, redeemed by Jesus Christ, that has a relationship with the Lord, there is a brother or sisterhood that is supernatural, and it's unlike any other connection on earth. Which makes me think about Monday night on my cruise. Now, uh, I'm not going to get into all my foot- football allegiances, but I'm a Niner fan, all right? Just putting that out there. And Monday night, there was a big game on the ship. I mean, it was here, but I was watching it on the ship. And when I got on the ship, I was wearing my Bosa jersey, 97, represent. And as I'm on the ship, I see a bunch of different Seahawks fans. <sighs> Sorry, Spencer and Brooke. They're from Washington. They're not real fans. Um, <laughs> And I'm on the boat, and I'm seeing all of these Seahawks fans. But for the first time ever, because i just become a Niner fan, and I'm obviously a bandwagoner, I started to hang out with other Niner fans, and this was so exciting. So we sat down. The game was being played at two different places. It was being played at the coffee shop, and it was being played at the casino bar. And I hung out at the coffee shop mostly because of the smoke that was at the casino bar. And we're sitting there watching the game, and there are a bunch of Niner fans, and there are a bunch of Seahawks fans. And here's the thing about sports fans. We're obnoxious. Did you guys know that? (laughs) Hey, don't tell me you don't know how to yell in church or say amen, because I hear you guys worshiping guys playing with footballs, right? And so all of a sudden, these people are screaming, rah, and I was sitting with some Niner fans, and they were super obnoxious. So I decided, now I'm going to go sit with some Seahawks fans. And they actually, they weren't that bad, but it was, it was rough 
because it was a very good game, probably one of the best games I've ever seen, ever. And yet, um, spoiler alert, in case you put it on your DVR, but you probably should have watched it by now, uh, the Niners lost. I know. And that was a big bummer. But you know what's better than having relationships with people that follow the same team? Being bound by the blood of Jesus Christ. Having brothers and sisters who are in the faith, who we also get to live life with, not through a generational lineage, but a selfless Savior who provided his blood for the purification of our sins. Joseph, it's a pretty, he's a pretty well-known character in the Old Testament. He's found in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. If you're like, what should I read? Read this story. Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50. After his life of being made for dead, okay, so, so basically Joseph had a bunch of brothers. He was his dad's favorite, and his brothers sold him into slavery, and they were hoping he was dead. Joseph had been placed in authority many passages or many uh, chapters later as a ruler in Egypt. He eventually came back into contact with his brothers who thought he was dead, who sold him into slavery, and when he came back into contact with them and they realized who he was, they were very afraid because they had sold him out. But here are the words that Joseph uses to help us understand God's sovereign plan in Genesis chapter 50. He says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I love when the Old Testament points to Christ. These words apply as much in that moment in history to this moment that we're reading about where the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas act in what they think will, will thwart this blaspheming carpenter's plans. And yet God will use the plan of these evil men for the glory of his name. I don't know about you, but God has made known time and time again that his plans for my life are always better than my plans for my life. And Mike and I were talking yesterday, and he brought up the point that where I had come from. A little over 10 years ago, I, I was primarily a speaker. I would just travel, and I would go and speak in different contexts and share Christ and share the gospel and say all these things, and everyone thought I was really cool because I could use all my good stuff, right? Like here with you, I have to come up with new stuff every week, and you're like, well, you don't. Anyway, <laughs> shut up. But I got to travel all over North America in person. I got to preach the gospel and see many, many people make decisions for Christ. I had made a name for myself. People knew who I was, who I am. But unfortunately, the age-old saying was true, as I made much of Jesus, people made much of me. To the point where I realized that my character was not ready for the attention that I was being given everywhere I spoke. And I had dreamed about what it would be like to speak to the same people each week to see life change in the same people, to use the public ministry that God had given me where I spoke in a bunch of different contexts to find those people who were really in, those people who really wanted to grow and really wanted to invest their lives in others. And that's what Church of the Valley has become for me, a place that feels like home, not just because we have new carpet, which is awesome, by the way, but a group of people that are led by a perfect Lord through an imperfect leadership to want to make known the truth and glory of Jesus Christ. With life change as our focus, we have experienced commitments to Jesus Christ that have changed families, have changed generations. We have witnessed and participated in baptisms. We have experienced weddings that reflect Jesus Christ in the church. We have seen God restore marriages through the power of his spirit and obedience to his word. We have seen deep spiritual discipleship relationships happen in ways we would have never expected. Men, women, and children have grown in their understanding and obedience for the right reasons to God's word. We've seen a worshipfulness of, of a people to engage in authentic worship, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week where they worship God with all that they are. We have a committed group of elders who pray for, oversee, and care for the flock of God's here at COV. 
We have a staff of current and former teammates that are helping engage with those who are in their oikos, their sphere of influence for the glory of God's name. We have volunteers that sit one service and serve one service each week because they want to grow in their Christ-likeness and help others do the same. When I tell you that I love what God is doing here and I love to get to do it with who God is allowed to be here, I am not kidding. This is my dream job. This is a special season. This is a special special time for the church, and I tell all of you because I pray that none of us would take it for granted. God is up to something, church. It's supernatural. It's unreal that he would be doing what he's doing. And none of it, he's not doing it as fast as like, I want it. I wanted carpet the day before I started, all right? Just putting that out there. But, but forget the carpet. God's changing lives, God's taken people who were dead and made them alive. God's taken people who had a very small flicker of flame of following Jesus, and now all of a sudden they're an inferno for Christ. Why? Because God is gracious. That was free. Verse 53. So from that day on, as the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, and they're all whining, from that day on they plotted to take his, Jesus' life. And yet there was a plan from the beginning, one that would not be thwarted, one that God would use a valuable creation to work through. Jesus being sentenced to death is the greatest injustice in all of human history, yet it is the most gracious and powerful sacrifice any of us could ever receive. Even though man wanted to stop Jesus from doing his ministry, little did they know that God's perfect will and his perfect plan would be accomplished through their evil desires. What man intends for evil, God can redeem for good. Did you know that? What man intends for evil, God can redeem for good. I got people all the time, man, the world is just messed up. Yeah, I read ahead. It said it was going to be. It's not going to get better yet until Christ comes. When's he going to come? I don't know. I don't need to know. I just need to make much of Jesus as I have breath in my lungs. Anybody, can I get a witness? So Jesus, up until this point, has been about as seeker-sensitive as Jesus is going to get. Eat my body, drink my blood. Never mind. <clears throat> but now, as we're going to see, as we're going to finish chapter 11, and once we get into chapter 12 next year, don't worry, because that's like a month and a half from now, He's going to invest in those who are left. See, we're in, we're in a process here at COV of investing in those who are here. See, we want to raise the bar, but we provide a ladder to help you get to that bar, not by what you can do, but how you can obey and abide in Christ. And I just know that for some of us, discipleship, it's just not as fast as we want. In fact, I know that for all of us. I know that a lot of us want to be more sanctified. I know a lot of us want our spouses to be more sanctified. If you're sitting with your spouse, look at them and go, uh-huh. No, don't. That's messed up. <laughs> I know a lot of us want our children to be more sanctified or we want our parents to be more sanctified. But here's the thing about discipleship. It does not happen in a microwave. It's not quick. God does what he does in the way that he wants to do it. So last week, we did this time of what did you put into practice from the sermon the week before? Remember this? At the beginning of the sermon, I said, hey, I want to hear your takeaways before I even preach. And people were like, are we supposed to? What? I don't understand. What did you do from the week before? And Rachel, a friend of mine that I've known for years, I got to actually perform her and Travis's wedding she said that after her baptism a few weeks ago, she was at lunch with her parents and her family and for the first time ever, she shared the gospel with them. She explained why she did what she did personally to all of them. And I know it was scary. I know it was hard for her. But you need to hear me. Every single one of us is at a different step of our sanctification process. Every single one of us. There are no two people that are on the exact same step, if you will, of their sanctification process. So for some of you, your next step, your next what you're supposed to do is not what Rachel's is. You might share your faith with every person you come in contact with, but maybe you need to stop clicking on certain things at night. Ooh, that's good. Maybe you need to give up your time to listen to someone who's a time suck. And if you don't know what a time suck is, you probably are one. 
Maybe you need to get over yourself and be generous with your finances because God has shown you over and over again that you are reluctant to use your debit card for anything that isn't used for your pleasure. See, I don't, I don't know what your next step is. I don't need to know. I just need to encourage you that whatever God's convicting you to do, put it into practice because that's where you grow. Verse 54, therefore, why? They're trying to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Therefore, well, they were planning to kill him. Why is this important? Because all of what we've read from John chapter 1 all the way to John chapter 11, as we're ending John chapter 11, has been known as Jesus' public ministry. He has been open. He has been preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God from different villages and from town to town. And as we get back into the book of John, after the first of the year, we will see Jesus equipping, discipling, and empowering his disciples to make known that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus will complete his work as we read ahead, but Jesus will develop his disciples to continue his unfinished work to make known that he is the Christ, to make disciples of all nations and generations for the glory of his name. We started back in February of 2018. We started John. I loved when Daniel preached a few weeks ago. He had that picture of Levi. Here's what Levi looked when we started. Now he's grown up and driving, you know, like it was very cute. And from February of 2018 till now, as we've gone through 11 chapters, now we've taken some breaks, okay, relax if you're new, not really. We've covered a little over three years of Jesus' ministry in 11 chapters. When we get back in John after the first of the year, we're going to study nine chapters that essentially are seven weeks of Jesus' life, minus three days where he's dead. And they talk about the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry, his death on the cross, the resurrection from the dead, his appearances, and his ascension. So why does John write all of what he has in this passage? Why is he giving us what Caiaphas said? Why is he saying all this? So we would understand that Jesus has and always will be the only sufficient substitute for any of us. It's all him. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Hallelujah. So, um, I need you to look at me, and I need you to hear this, okay? I have a note. Make sure they hear you, all right? I told myself that yesterday. Old me told new me. To satisfy the wages of sin, death had to occur, To satisfy the wages of sin, because sin exists, death had to occur. And it was either the sinner, now who are the sinners? Us. Or it was the son. It was the son's death. It was either the sinner's death or the son's death who would satisfy the wrath of God. And because of the great exchange, and God making known his plan to many of us, because we get to plead Jesus, because we can say we're with Jesus, we get to say we're with him. He imputes, he gifts us his perfect and righteous record. He gives it to us for those who have received his grace through faith in Christ. Verse 55, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansings before the Passover. Many voluntarily went to cleanse themselves. Even though it was not required by the Jewish law, many chose to sanctify themselves in this way of washing prior to the Passover. And as we've been reading, this is the third Passover that the Apostle John talks about in Jesus' earthly ministry. And John is preparing the reader for what's about to take place, where the true Passover sacrifice will happen in God's only Son, Jesus Christ. See, the Old Testament points to the New. This Passover created a lot of crowds of Jews from all over Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. They came to celebrate this wonderful event where God decided to spare the firstborn sons of all who sacrificed a lamb and took the blood of that sacrificial lamb and put it on the doorposts in the Old Testament in Israel. Verse 56, they kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he going to come to the festival at all? 
See, there was an essential warrant out for Jesus' arrest, and many who heard about this wondered if he'd walk right into the trap. Verse 57, but the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. People were on high alert. They were looking for this most wanted man because these people, and this is a lot of politics right here, they feared the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin a lot more than they feared God. So we know how the story plays out, right? We've read ahead. We've heard of Good Friday and Easter, right? We know that in a week, according to this gospel account, Jesus will be betrayed by Judas. He will be arrested. That Peter will deny him how many times? Theologians, way to go. That Jesus will be tried, convicted, sentenced to death while the crowds released a murderer instead. And Jesus will be flogged within an inch of his life. His body will not be able to carry the cross unto Calvary. He will be nailed to a cross, nails put through both of his wrists, one nail placed through his ankles. He will be put on display, bleeding and naked before his own mother and the crowds. And he will be drowning in his own blood, gasping for air until he gives up his spirit. But when he gives up the, his spirit, the veil will be torn the sky will go dark in the middle of the day. An earthquake will erupt. And what the Jews and the Romans may think may look like a blasphemer getting what they deserve will be the wrath of God for the sins of the world being placed on God's only son, Jesus. See, here's the point. His death brings us life. His wounds brought us healing. His death on the cross made it so that we could have life and life abundantly. J.D. Greer puts it this way, a pastor back east, if there were ever a time when it looked like God was absent and evil was in control, it was when Jesus, the supposed beloved son of God, was being tortured to death. We know that there was never a time when God was more in the driver's seat. He was accomplishing our salvation in that moment. Something that appeared to be a victory for evil turned out to be the best part of his plan. He didn't bring salvation despite the cross, but actually through it. Hallelujah, indeed. So what is this story about Jesus resurrecting Lazarus all about? I mean, I know it points to his resurrection, but what is all of this about? Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Okay, I'm about to take a liberty, all right? So at least right now, I know I'm taking a liberty. Generally, when I'm teaching Scripture, I make sure Scripture interprets Scripture and all of that. So I'm about to take a liberty, but if I'm ever going to take a liberty biblically, I think it's justified if I'm pointing to the gospel because all of this points to that. Here's what it is. John chapter 12 through 21, what we're going to study next year, it's all about the gospel, all of it, all of it's pointing towards the good news that Jesus came in the flesh. But here's the crazy part. John chapter 1 through John chapter 11 all points to the gospel and how you can be justified and declared righteous by the work of Christ on your behalf. Your sickness, human being, is not your physical decay. Anyone have some decaying this week? I did. I went to the gym. Your sickness is not your physical decaying. That's just a symptom of a much bigger issue. Your sickness is your sin condition. That ever since you breathed your first breath, there has been a chasm between you and God, and God decided that you didn't have to go out like that. He decided that your destiny did not have to be death, that your sickness of sin would, could and would lead to the glory of God through the Son of God, because what could be mistaken for, for a man getting what he deserved or as evil getting the last word truly was the moment that sin no longer reigned on earth because it had been taken upon himself on the cross. The God-man Jesus wins. And God did what you could not do. He died the death that you should have died. 
If you've been here a while, you've heard this phrase, that Jesus lived the life you couldn't, died the death you should have, and physically and victoriously rose from the dead, defeating death, that we could have eternal life. If you've been here at all, you've heard us say this. We say this a lot. And if you've heard us say it a lot, you've probably, it's probably lost its meaning on you. But I don't want any of us to disregard how important the great exchange is. That Jesus got what I deserved by hanging on the cross for my blasphemy and for my unwillingness to obey God. And yet in the great exchange, I got right standing. My sin was forgiven because Jesus lived the perfect life that I was unable to replicate and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. Hallelujah. Anybody? Church, as I prayed for you, as I as I prayed for you and as I prayed for you this past week, as I thought about writing the sermon, there was this specific question that sticks out to me. Pretty much every time I write a message and I'm thinking about you. I'm not thinking about the people that watch on YouTube. I'm not thinking about the people that listen on podcasts. I'm not thinking about the people who now can hear us on Spotify, all right? I'm thinking about you, those who are a part of this community. I was struck by this question. What do I want people to understand? What do I want them to know? And what do I want them to do? So what do I want you to understand, COV? The simplistic truth that God loves you. God loves you. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more. He proved his love by his death on the cross for you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What do I want you to know? It's not about what I want you to know. It's about who I want you to know, who is God through his only son, Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So that's what I want you to understand. That's what I want you to know or who I want you to know. What do I want you to do? I want you to change direction. To obey God for the right reasons. To no longer trust the ways of this world, but to repent and believe the gospel. That's why Jesus came. He said, the time has come. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. We never graduate from the good news, church. But we can repent daily, and we can believe the good news that makes us who we are when we find our new identity in Jesus Christ. Worship team, would you come on up?